0: To the book of Ezra, chapter 4. I'll be reading this uh, chapter, and if you're using a Pew Bible, you'll find this uh, starting on page 639 and continuing on to page 640. Page 639 and continuing on to page 640. Ezra chapter 4. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel. As King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithradath, Tabel, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their companions representatives of the Dinaites, the Afarsothkites, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan, the Dehavites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river, and so forth. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls complete it, They will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which cause this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Reum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river, peace, and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region, beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings? Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehom Shimshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God which is at Jerusalem ceased and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius King of Persia. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we look at Ezra 4 under this theme God's enemies oppose rebuilding the temple. God's enemies oppose rebuilding the temple. Now, you remember, as we looked previously in the last uh, several weeks, that the people, the Jews, have just concluded the first rebuilding efforts of the temple, but particularly, what did they do? You remember, they offered the sacrifices and engaged in the feast. And of course, there was joy, as we saw at the end of chapter 3 last time last week. There was great joy in the shouting of praise, the loud singing of praise to the Lord in terms of, Uh, the fact that he is good, his mercy endures forever toward Israel. But at the same time, there was weeping, there was lamentation, there was mourning because of the fact that this was, their feeble efforts, as it were, noble but feeble efforts were in contrast to that magnificent temple that Solomon had built with all of the gold in it. And we also noticed that this noise, then, as you see at the end of verse 13, this noise attracted the attention of the surrounding peoples. The sound, that mingled sound of joy and weeping, was heard afar off. Now, As we look at our text today, I want us to remember, it's a point I've made before, I'll make it again today, what we see here is the importance of history, including the idea of great conflict, of great war between the people of God and those that are the enemies of God. And that's, indeed, that's what history is all about. History largely is about war. It's been said that if you go into a museum, like of ancient peoples, the Egyptians, whatever, that you will find you, you will find two stories told. One is the physical conflicts, the wars that nations engage in, but you will also see the war that mankind wages against God in terms of the false worship. And in a sense, that's what, again, we find here, especially the religious war that is going on here, the religious war that God's people have always been involved with from the very, from Genesis 3 onward, the two seeds, the two seeds of the woman, and the conflict then between those two seeds. And we, we find that all throughout history, and that's what we find a, rep- a manifestation of as well. And here, of course, this great conflict is between the Jews and the Samaritans, those that were, at this point, the one, the, those that were inhabiting the northern part of what had been the kingdom of Israel. But, as we will see, was largely a mixed multitude that came in. And so it was was foreign peoples that came in to what had been the northern part of Israel. So this conflict then between Jews and Samaritans. God's people always experience this opposition in the world. It is perpetual. One other quick note here. You'll notice down in verse 7 of chapter 4, The letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. And so Ezra chapter 4, verse 8, all the way through to chapter 8, verse 6, uses Aramaic. Now you ask what Aramaic is? Well, first of all, it was, we could say, the lingua franca, the diplomatic language of the day of the Persian Empire and of that day, it was a Semitic language. You've heard the word Semite or Semitic. It was a Semitic language similar to Hebrew. I was privileged in seminary actually to take a course in Aramaic, as well as, of course, courses in Hebrew. Very similar, some variation, but similar languages. And uh, so, but this is uh, a portion of the Old Testament that is actually written in Aramaic. Now the first thing we see then today is the request from these uh from these uh peoples that were surrounding the Jews there from these peoples actually they're described you see in verse one as adversaries or enemies, but we see the request we see the proposal that comes to them, and it was um It was more than simply a a polite request. Uh, It says, let us build with you. But actually, it was more like, we will build with you. They said, these adversaries, these nations from around the the people of God, said, why, we've sacrificed to God since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. Esarhaddon ruled from 681 to 669 B.C. Right now, at this point, this is like more than 100 years later. So the Assyrian Empire, you remember, had taken the 10 northern tribes of Israel and had taken them into captivity in 722 B.C. And the king Esarhaddon came along a generation or so later. Uh, What we see then is that uh, he had deported Israel, the northern tribes, as part of a curse of a treaty, of of the provision of a treaty, but then Esarhaddon had brought these foreigners into the land in order to inhabit it. So these were mostly, these Samaritans at this point were mostly non-Jews or non-Israelites, shall we say. And so they had been brought in uh, into the land to inhabit it. And so uh, they; these are the ones then that are that are coming to uh, uh, the Jews, to the uh, to Judah and to Benjamin, to Zerubbabel and so forth, and saying, "Let us build. Indeed, we will build with you." Now, notice that they did not directly attack the people of God. No, 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 of course not. Notice the subtlety here. Much like children, you remember the snake in the garden? You remember the devil in the garden? How subtle he is as the serpent? Yea, has God said? Subtlety. This is the way the devil often works. You know, we... We picture, we often picture the devil as, uh, you know, with, uh, with a tail and horns and an ugly red face. You know what I'm talking about, right? But actually, that's not usually the way the devil comes to us. He comes in very sly, slick, uh, subtle ways. And, that's, and he is using, remember, it is this warfare that we see a, a manifestation of. This battle right here in chapter 4 of Ezra, who's behind it? It's the devil that's behind it. And so these people then are reflecting their father, the devil, in terms of trying to undermine the people of God and the worship of God. See, they were very religious. They're very religious, weren't they? Just because someone's religious doesn't mean he's right. Matter of fact, he can be very wrong and very dead wrong. They were very religious. They, but more than that, they said they wanted to help the building of the temple. They claimed that they worshiped God. Notice what it says here in verse 2 for we seek your God as you do seeking your God as you do. We're, we're, we're just the same, even though they weren't, but we're just the same. They stated that they sacrificed to him. But as I mentioned, these people were a heathen people, a mixed people with mixed worship. Now, if you turn back to the book of Second Kings, just for a moment, Second Kings chapter 17, if you're using a pew Bible, uh, you'll find this. On page 528, page 528, notice what we find here. in verses um, uh, 24 and 25. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Verse 26, so they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they are killing them, because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. And the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the god of the land. And one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. That sounds good, doesn't it? But you see, what was the problem? It was just a ritual for them. They were just going through the motions, mechanically almost, in order somehow, by doing this, somehow we'll be right with God. But notice the next verse. However, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines, on the high places, which the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth-Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sepharvites burned their... listen to this, burned their children in fire to Adrammelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord, and from every class they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord. In other words, they don't really fear the Lord. Nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them and so forth that was the problem you see they weren't really honoring and fearing the lord they may have gone through rituals but that's all it was they were still serving their false gods and it's in that context that i mean by the way even to the even to the extent of offering children to put them through the fire as sacred, taking babies and putting them in, fi- in fires. Yes. Apart from even the, the horrible nature of the, the idolatry itself, which is actually the worst thing, but it is still a horrible and cruel thing to treat children like that. And it's in that context, then, that we have the response. So as we come back to Ezra 4, then, notice the response. Who made it? Well, Zerubbabel, who was sort of the the head of of the civil government there. Joshua, the priest, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel. Who was represented? Judah and Benjamin, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, And they are described, notice that they are described as uh, back in verse 1, the descendants of the captivity. Well, that's not a very nice way to refer to people, is it? But you see, what's the point here? They looked on the surface as small and insignificant. And maybe they would have been tempted, therefore, to go along with this offer. But they realized that one of the reasons for their captivity was, the, was their neglect of the temple. And so this spurred them on then to reject, to reject this offer. Notice the response itself. It was, a, it was a diplomatic no built on legal grounds. They said, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God But we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So we have the the authority from the king to do this. And of course, more importantly, we have the authority of God. Now, what were the uh, reasons uh, for this response? Well, the request may have seemed plausible enough. They wanted, let us say, these other tribes, the other peoples, wanted to worship Jehovah. But in point of fact, these foreigners wanted to gain political advantage and possibly control. And apart from anything else, to have included them would have, at this critical point in Israel's history, threatened the purity of God's worship. They are called adversaries, enemies, verse 1. And more than that, as we've already noted, they did not understand the exclusiveness of the worship of Jehovah, the worship of the Lord. They may have sought the same God, but not exclusively, not not solely as he had determined. This is what we call syncretism. That's a fancy way of saying a mixture of religious ideas. A mixture. You all know the word, ladies, you know the word synthetic, synthetic material. Okay, what is synthetic material? Well, it's, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's uh, polyester and cotton or whatever it is that is weaved together to make a new type of material. That's synthetic and that's, of course, what you have here. So you've got, you've got some good stuff, if we can say, in terms of the, the worship of Jehovah, but it is weaved together in terms of this pagan worship. And so this is what, then, uh, they, the people of God are facing. As an aside, I want to share with you what happened six months ago here, we were approached, out of the blue, by a filmmaker. We were approached by a filmmaker who wanted to rent our property in order to lay some electrical cables for uh, a scene that they wanted to shoot here. The only problem was, he works with Disney Company. And if you know what's going on with Disney Company, the promotion of child sex, of pedophilia, all kinds of dirty things. And so the elders of this church politely, but definitively said, no, we're not going to engage in that kind of business arrangement with you. Oh, it would have been nice to have extra $500, right? We would not do it. We would not do it. And that our refusal to do that is a manifestation of the answer, the response that is given here by Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the others. So now, secondly, does does it does everything just go away? No, no. There is opposition. That's the second point, opposition. And this comes in in two ways, and it's It's kind of interesting as we look at this opposition because it comes, first of all, immediately in terms of this particular circumstance here, around 536 B.C. or so. And so there is this immediate opposition in that particular set of circumstances. What did they do? Verse 4, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. And so they weakened their hands. They troubled them. We might even say they terrified them. Now, it doesn't specify, but we can imagine what was going on here. Sabotage. Sabotage. Calling them names. Threatening them. And not only that, but hiring counselors against them. Hiring counselors counselors against them. Verse 5, and hired counselors, lawyers perhaps, against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So these were legal advisors at the Persian court. The, the word there to frustrate it, it um, the root there is parar, which means to break in pieces, or can mean to break in pieces, to frustrate them. And by the way, these foreign nations did these things for a long time. That's what we find here. So from the, from Cyrus, king of Persia, he reigned from 536 to 530 BC. All the way to Darius, who started his reign in 522, so about 15 years. During that time, you had Cambyses, you had Pseudo Smyrdes, but during that time period, from Cyrus, who had given them permission to come back, and all the way through to Darius. Now, notice in verse 7, then, notice in verse 7, something very interesting happens. You see, it says here, in the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabul, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and so on. Now, starting in verse 7 and going through to verse 23, we are actually dealing with another, another scenario altogether. So what the writer of Ezra is doing here as he's writing this history, remember history is important, but as he's writing this history, he's giving here in chapter 4 what was happening there around 536, 535 BC. He's writing there, but now he's he's taking a break from that and he's talking about something that happened Several generations later, during the time of Artaxerxes, Arctic Artaxerxes Arctic began his rule in 465 BC. So, from five, let's say 35. So, you have 15 years or so where where the uh, the um, you had this opposition there in terms of the temple. But now the writer is saying. Let's take a time out from that, and let's, let's remember as well that not only was there opposition in terms of building the temple, but there was also opposition in terms of building the walls of Jerusalem. And so he's using this as an illustration to show that the opposition that God's people undergo was not, was not simply with regard to the temple and was not simply in the five hundred B.C., but rather extend it into the 400s B.C. as well. So as- Ahasuerus that you find there in uh, verse 6 uh, is, uh, uh, is the same one as, uh, Xerxes. as Xerxes, Ahasuerus. You find him talked about in the book of Esther. Notice that the, op- the opponents wrote an accusation. They were uh, de- very deliberate in this. They wrote in the beginning of his reign. They didn't waste any time. And then also in the days of Artaxerxes, his son, who, as I said, began to rule in 465 BC, they wrote these letters. Now, we all know what it's like to mail a letter today, and hopefully it gets where it's going, hopefully in a couple of days or three or four days across the country perhaps. And we've all heard of the Pony Express, right? We sometimes joke about that. Does, has the Pony Express delivered the package yet? Well, interestingly, back then, they had an ancient Pony Express. And there were posts, there were uh, uh, stations, every 14 miles with fresh horses and messengers. And so these messages, then, The one to Xerxes and the one in return could, these messages could have gotten to him within a week, well within a week, and then of course could have gotten back in about the same amount of time. Notice the conspirers, various Persian officials, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, Rehum, the high official, the commanding officer, uh, presided over a group of minor officials and reported to the the fellow who's called the satrap, which would be like a governor of one of these 127 provinces. Shimshai, the scribe or secretary. The Dineites, these were judges, probably royal judges, concerned with judgment of cases with regard to the safety of the state. The Afarsothkites, say that 10 times fast, all right. The Afarsothkites were... Officials, governors, the Tarpalites, other officials, the Epharsites, uh, and then the foreigners, the Archivites from Mesopotamia, the Babylonians, the people from Susa, an ancient capital, that is the Elamites. Notice the contents of this letter to Arctic Xerxes. First of all, they butter him up. Ah, oh, that's what you do when you're dealing with a politician, you butter him up first. And that's what you find here. Osnapper is another another name for Ashurbanipal, who was Assyria's last successful king, called the Great and Noble. Oh, and what are they doing in verses 13 through 16? Oh, we are so concerned for you, O oh king. We're so concerned it was not proper, verse 14, for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we've sent and informed the king. They were, of course, concerned about themselves, but they were putting it They're buttering them up and putting it in these terms. Notice the exaggeration in verse 16. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. Well, that's, of course, an exaggeration. That's not true. As a matter of fact, there are other things here they've said that are not true. And again, we should remember in the opposition that we ourselves face. there are people who will lie about us. There are people who will lie about us in order to get their way. So the complaint is the Jews you allowed to come here O king have come to Jerusalem and are rebuilding it. It's a rebellious and evil city and um, notice the use of the word rebellious or seditious. They also say that the Jews would not then pay any taxes, whether the monetary tax or the tribute, a fixed tax, or the duty, which was like an unpaid yet forced service uh, by those who would be pressed into service to build things or whatever. And they offer proof to this. They're good lawyers. They offer proof. They appeal to the records, these official court records, which would have, of course, documented the rebellions by Hezekiah and Zedekiah and so forth. But notice that this was, this was really not accurate at this point. The Jews were not then disloyal as alleged. They were following what Jeremiah wrote, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, to seek the, the, uh, the peace of the city, and therefore there was no sense of rebellion. So then the letter comes back by Pony Express from Artaxerxes, sent to those living in Samaria and elsewhere beyond the river. The letter sent to him was translated in his presence. And this would have been a sentence-to-sentence translation from Aramaic into Persian. He said, yes, I researched this. The city has a long history of rebellion. Powerful kings had ruled over Jerusalem, it's probably, and so an order was issued for work to stop on the city and its wall to prevent the threat to the king's interest. But notice something interesting. Do you see this at verse 21? That this city, city may not be built until the command is given by me. So it's like a loophole there. He's leaving himself a way out in case he decides to reverse himself. But for the moment, the work would be stopped. And that leads us then, thirdly, to the results. The results. First of all, carrying on with the picture of the city and the wall, verse 23. Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehom, Shamshai, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. So soldiers, then, were going to enforce the decree. But notice verse 24. Now we come back to the main, the main topic of Ezra 4. That was a parenthesis, Artaxerxes' the walls of Jerusalem, now we're coming back to the temple. Verse 24, thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work came to a standstill. This was the case for about 15 years, although we're not exactly sure It's not spelled out here exactly when it it started to cease. We know the opposition was right away. It may have taken a little bit of time for them to get their way. But sometime, at least, during that 15-year period, almost certainly sooner than later, you had the work on the temple to cease. And it did until the second year of the reign of Darius. I want to pause here just a moment before I make application and notice something that I think is important. You see, we look at the first part of chapter 4 and we say, great, these people knew what they were doing. They, 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 the, the, uh, the Israelites, the Jews, they, they were faithful. They wouldn't compromise. But yet, as you see the end of chapter 4, that opposition took its toll. See, it would have been wrong for them to compromise, absolutely, obviously. It would have been wrong, dead wrong. But standing firm doesn't always mean you're going to have success, at least not immediately. And especially if you succumb to the opposition. And that's what happened here, is it not? Whether it be by official decree, it doesn't say that in the text, or whether it just be that the people got worn out. They got tired. They got worn out in terms, they wanted to be faithful. And yet they eventually were persuaded otherwise. And of course, as as we'll see later then in chapters 5 and 6, they were stirred up by the prophets, by Haggai and Zechariah, to get their priorities straight. But at this point now, for however long, the people of God stopped work on the house of God. Well, my first point of application today, then, has to do with regard to the church. And these are, I'm going to talk about a number of things in terms of this. And then I'll also talk in terms of, with regard to our our salvation. So first of all, with regard to the church, the first point I want to make here is, there must be no compromise. There must be no compromise. The church may not soil her skirts with the dirt of the world, and she, nor may she mix the truth of Scripture with that which the world brings. And of course, there are many dangers today of the church compromising the person and work of Christ, the doctrine of Scripture. Is it really true that the Bible is the word of God? Well, yes, it is. The requirements of salvation. There is only one way of salvation; and it's by means of faith in Jesus Christ. The requirements of membership in the church. You promise to live as a Christian if you become a member of the church. And so, we need to uphold those standards. I think some of you all, you know, perhaps most of you all are aware that we have had a disciplined case in this church in, re- in upholding the requirements of membership and not compromising. But also in the adoption of unbiblical standards. And here I mention two things. The LGBTQ plus, 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 whatever it is, movement. That's one thing. Where the church is being seduced by the world and being seduced by people within the church who claim to be Christians who say that it's really okay for me to have these feelings, to have these, or or perhaps even to engage in unlawful sexual activity. And also critical race theory, looking at everything through a lens of race rather than understanding that the critical issue, the essential issue, is a spiritual issue. and that's what unites all of us. But these are things by which the church is being attacked today. But yet whatever the att- wherever the attack is, we must stand firm, we must not compromise. Notice the opposition here. It will be encountered. as we mentioned, it will be encountered. It will be encountered while building the temple. It will be encountered while building the gospel kingdom. It will be perpetuated by those whose motives are not pure or noble. It will be motivated, or perpetuated rather, by those who are motivated by pragmatism and expediency. The rulers in Samaria here gave the same false pledge of loyalty is when the Jews in Jesus' day cried, we have no king but Caesar. Today, my friends, there are those who would use the church for political advantage or monetary gain. That's wrong. That's wicked. There are those who would want the church to grow no matter what means are used. Again, that is a compromise with worldly means. In terms of this opposition, again, I would note that it was swift and concentrated. The enemies wasted no time. They covenanted together against the Lord and his church. These people who are enemies adversaries. And so, my friends, then, we see that with regard to the Church, the opposition is going to be there. But we must not compromise. And secondly, with regard to our salvation, take note here, in terms of our salvation, take note of the opposition that is here. We know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and we know that it is he who wishes to destroy us. Attacks against the church are satanic, being motivated by him. And as Jesus said, as we read today from John chapter 15, as Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the opposition is motivated, is inspired, we might even say, by the evil spirit, by the devil, by Satan, is motivated by him. And this opposition that is directed because of hatred for Christ and his word and his gospel, this opposition never lets up. That's why we talk about the church in, in this world today. We talk about the church militant. The church is like an army. Now when you die, you get to go to be with Jesus. It's the church triumphant. You've finished the race. You've you've finished the course. You've fought the good fight. But in this world, the church is militant. And we are soldiers in his army. And that opposition never lets up. There are fightings within against heretics. Matter of fact, this is part of the seduction, is it not? But there are also fightings without against persecutors. Those who try to seduce the church by having it conform to the world's standards. Those who threaten the church's existence when it will not conform. And that's the issue in our own day, is it not? We, I think of, of Christians in China today. Well, you can go to church in China. If you want to go to church in China, you can go to church in China. But you have to go to one of the ones approved by the government. And if you go to one that is not approved by the government... Or if you lead one, like Pastor Yi, who's been in jail, who's been in prison for about four years now, in China. You'll go to prison. You'll be persecuted. You see? And that's a danger, even in the West. Even in Western nations. This is a danger today. In places like Australia and New Zealand and Canada, and Great Britain. People are arrested today for preaching the gospel publicly in Great Britain. And, of course, the danger is here as well. And so there, there's the attempt in this battle to have, like, spies, to have people within, to, to eat from within, but also then there is the external pressure from outside the church as well in order to try to conform the church to a worldly standard. But you know what's interesting is that in terms of this opposition, overcoming this opposition, coming through it, coming through it, because ultimately there would be victory here, But coming through it was part of the greater glory of this temple as compared to Solomon's. You see, the people are being persecuted here in Ezra 4 as they try to build the temple. Of course, that's not the end of the story, as we will see. They ended up doing it. And one of the things that we realize then is is the fact that out of persecution comes glory. Out of persecution the cauldron out of the fire the oven of persecution comes glory especially as we consider god's marvelous preservation of his people and his worship so that the messiah so that christ could come that's what this is all pointing towards this is all this is all in pre- preparation the people coming back into the land, the sacrifices being offered, the temple being rebuilt in order to point to the one who is the true temple and the final and ultimate sacrifice at the cross. I mentioned a moment ago this chapter ends sad, sadly, dismally even. Thus the work ceased. But it was not the final chapter God is at work in preserving his people even through these trying circumstances and therefore have hope in God even when the enemy seems to triumph Final point I want to make here today in terms of salvation is that what we what we have here is a picture of the exclusive nature of our faith, and the separation from the world. We are called out. We are the called out ones. We are called unto God, but we are called out of the world. We are separated. My friends, there are only two camps, the city of God and the other city. So, we have different families, we have different races, different tribes, different ethnicities. But my friends, at the end of the day, this is the the real separation. The real separation between people is between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. No matter what your background, no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what ethnicity you are or race you are. That's the ultimate division between those who are following Christ and those who are not. And here then, in this chapter, we have graphically portrayed the fact that a person is either for or against Christ. Those who belong to him like Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the others, will love him and his worship and his church. But they who do not belong to him will be opposed to him and his worship and his church, even while perhaps pretending to be followers of Yahweh. But no, but we want, we want our false gods as well. We want our unbiblical standards at the same time. And so let me ask you in closing then in which camp are you? In which camp are you? Are you living for Christ? Are you perhaps, though professing faith in Christ, compromising with the world? Are you thinking God's thoughts after him or not? Are you identifying with or supporting the enemy? In terms of education, how you educate your children, in terms of how you spend your money on entertainment. terms of how you cast your votes in elections. In whose camp are you? Are you living for Christ or are you cavorting with and supporting those who are the enemies of Christ? May God give us all the grace To have the same zeal and determination, even though it fizzled out here, as we can see, the work stopped for a time, but may we have the same determination, the same zeal, the same desire, as was expressed by Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel, who said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. But we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel. Amen. We please stand for prayer. And our Father, we pray that thou wouldst have mercy upon us and bless us, O God. And enable us, O Lord, to do thy will. O protect thy people in this day. In this day, O Lord of chaos and confusion, of opposition, of hatred. Oh, give us grace, Lord, to follow King Jesus as the only king and head of the church and the only savior of thine elect. So give us that grace, we pray. Pardon us of our sins and enable us to follow after thee